Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Tonight I will be offering the final chapter of Dr. Carlos Castaneda's last book, The Active Side of Infinity. The first two books aired in my last two shows, and this will conclude the trilogy. I would like to invite you to pay very close attention at the end of the story and the closing syntax. Listen to the syntax as many times as it takes for you to fully grasp its meaning and how it applies to each and every one of you. This is very important and is one of the sorcerer's secrets of my lineage. In next week's show, I will be expanding on this sorcerer's secret and how you can literally achieve anything your awareness can hold through the application of a sorcerer's intent. Anyone can make a New Year's resolution, but manifesting it into the totality of rotation is a formidable feat, unless you apply the secrets of the sorcerer's intent. No, I am not speaking of the principles of positive thought found in such successful books as The Secret, although that book contains part of the formula. It does not contain the sorcerer's intent, which cements and empowers the principles of positive thought. So be sure to tune in and tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. This could change your life forever. Now, before we get into the final chapters of the active side of infinity, Allow me to set the mood with a composition from Michael Stearns and Ron Sunsinger, who composed an album called Sorcerer, dedicated to the path of my friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. This song is called Kikarisca, Finding the Path with Heart. I guarantee this is unlike anything you've ever heard, and I personally find it most interesting that it contains some of the sounds one hears when you step between the worlds. Chai Kuska Kichariska Katum Pungu Kichariska Katum Pungu Vinti Wachiwan Ganjai Kuskai Vinti Wachiwan Ganjai Kuska Japaruna Kai Kuyu 
chuspa, ya para una caigo en chuspa, pinte ya tarrexinampa, pinte ya tarrexinampa, y que chariscan hatum pum pum, 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 que chariscan hatum pum hesitated for a long time, not out of bashfulness, but because I didn't know whom to include in my thanks. I had completely internalized the sorcerer's concept that warriors can't owe anything to anyone. Don Juan had drilled a sorcerer's axiom into me. Warriors pay elegantly, generously, and with unequaled ease every favor, every service rendered to them. In this manner, they get rid of the burden of being indebted. I had paid, or I was in the process of paying, everyone who had honored me with their care or concern. I had reviewed my life to such an extent that I had not left a single stone unturned. I truthfully believed in those days that I didn't know anything to anyone. I expressed my beliefs and hesitation to Don Juan. Don Juan said that I had indeed reviewed my life thoroughly, but he added that I was far from being free of indebtedness. How about your ghosts, he went on, those you can no longer touch. He knew what he was talking about. During my review of my life, I had recounted to him every incident that I could remember. Out of the hundreds of incidents that I related to him, he had isolated three as samples of indebtedness that I incurred very early in life, and added to that my indebtedness to the person who was instrumental in my meeting him. 
I had thanked my friend profusely, and I had sensations that something out there acknowledged my thanks. The other three had remained stories from my life, stories of people who had each given me an inconceivable gift, and whom I had never thanked. One of these stories had to do with the man I'd known when I was a child. His name was Mr. Leandro Acosta. He was my grandfather's arch-enemy, his true nemesis. My grandfather had accused this man repeatedly of stealing chickens from his chicken farm. The man wasn't a vagrant, but someone who did not have a steady, definite job. He was a maverick of sorts, a gambler, a master of many trades, handyman, self-styled curer, hunter, and provider of plant and insect specimens for local herbalists and curers and any kind of bird or mammal life for taxidermists or pet shops. People believed that he made tons of money but that he couldn't keep it or invest it. His detractors and friends alike believed that he could have established the most prosperous business in the area, doing what he knew best, searching for plants and hunting animals, but that he was cursed with a strange disease of the spirit that made him restless, incapable of tending to anything for any length of time. One day, while I was taking a stroll on the edge of my grandfather's farm, I noticed that someone was watching me from between the thick bushes at the forest's edge. It was Mr. Acosta. He was squatting inside the bushes of the jungle itself, and would have been totally out of sight had it not been for my sharp, eight-year-old eyes. No wonder my grandfather thinks that he comes to steal chickens, I thought. I believed that no one else but me could have noticed him. He was utterly concealed by his motionlessness. I had caught the difference between the bushes and his silhouette by feeling rather than sight. I approached him. The fact that people rejected him so viciously or liked him so passionately intrigued me no end. What are you doing there, Mr. Acosta? I asked, daringly. I'm taking a shit while I look at your grandfather's farm, he said, so you better scram before I get up unless you like the smell of shit. I moved away a short distance. I wanted to know if he was really doing what he was claiming. He was. He got up. I thought he was going to leave the bush and come onto my grandfather's land and perhaps walk across to the road, but he didn't. He began to walk inward, into the jungle. Hey! Hey, Mr. Acosta! I yelled. Can I come with you? I noticed that he had stopped walking. It was again more a feeling than an actual sight because the bush was so thick. You can certainly come with me if you can find an entry into the bush, he said. That wasn't difficult for me. In my hours of idleness, I had marked an entry into the bush with a good-sized rock. I had found out through an endless process of trial and error that there was a crawling space there, which if I followed for three or four yards turned into an actual trail on which I could stand up and walk. Mr. Acosta came to me and said, Bravo, kid, you've done it. Yes, come with me if you want to. That was the beginning of my association with Mr. Leandro Acosta. We went on daily hunting expeditions. Our association became so obvious, since I was gone from the house from dawn to sunset without anybody ever knowing where I went, that finally my grandfather admonished me severely. You must select your acquaintances, he said, or you will end up being like them. I will not tolerate this man affecting you in any way imaginable. He could certainly transmit to you his elan, yes, and he could also influence your mind to be just like his, useless. I'm telling you, if you don't put an end to this, I will. I'll send the authorities after him on charges of stealing my chickens, because you know damn well that he comes every day and steals them. 
I tried to show my grandfather the absurdity of his charges. Mr. Acosta didn't have to steal chickens. He had the vastness of that jungle at his command. He could have drawn from that jungle anything he wanted. But my arguments infuriated my grandfather even more. I realized then that my grandfather secretly envied Mr. Acosta's freedom. And Mr. Acosta was transformed for me by this realization from a nice hunter into the ultimate expression of what is at the same time both forbidden and desired. I attempted to curtail my encounters with Mr. Acosta, but the lure was just too overwhelming for me. Then, one day, Mr. Acosta and three of his friends proposed that I do something that Mr. Acosta had never done before, catch a vulture alive, uninjured. He explained to me that the vultures of the area, which were enormous, with a five to six foot wingspan, had seven different types of flesh in their bodies, and each one of those seven types served a specific curative purpose. He said that the desired state was that the vulture's body not be injured. The vulture had to be killed by tranquilizer, not by violence. It was easy to shoot it, but in that case, the meat lost its curative value. So the art was to catch it alive, a thing that he had never done. He had figured out, though, that with my help and the help of his three friends, he had the problem licked. He assured me that his was a natural conclusion arrived at after hundreds of occasions on which he had observed the behavior of vultures. We need a dead donkey in order to perform this feat, something which we have, he declared ebulliently. He looked at me, waiting for me to ask the question of what would be done with the dead donkey. Since the question was not asked, he proceeded. We remove the intestines and we put some sticks in there to keep the roundness of the belly. The leader of the turkey vultures is the king. He is the biggest, the most intelligent, he went on. No sharper eyes exist. That's what makes him a king. He'll be the one who will spot the dead donkey and the first who will land on it. He'll land downwind from the donkey to really smell that it is dead. The intestines and soft organs that we are going to draw out of the donkey's belly will pile by his rear end, outside. This way it looks like a wildcat has already eaten some of it. Then, lazily, the vulture will come closer to the donkey. He'll take his time. He'll come hopping flying. And then he will land on the dead donkey's hip and begin to rock the donkey's body. He would turn it over if it were not for the four sticks that we will stake into the ground as part of the armature. He'll stand on the hip for a while, that will be the clue for other vultures to come and land there in the vicinity. Only when he has three or four of his companions down with him will the king vulture begin his work. And what is my role in all this, Mr. Acosta? I asked. You hide inside the donkey, he said with a deadpan expression. Nothing to it. I give you a pair of specially designed leather gloves, and you sit there and wait until the king turkey vulture rips the anus of the dead donkey open with his enormous powerful beak, and sticks his head in to begin eating. Then you grab him by the neck with both hands and don't let go. My three friends and I will be hiding on horseback in a deep ravine. I'll be watching the operation with binoculars. When I see that you have grabbed the king vulture by the neck, we'll come at full gallop and throw ourselves on top of the vulture and subdue him. Can you subdue that vulture, Mr. Acosta? I asked him. Not that I doubted his skill, I just wanted to be reassured. Of course I can, he said with all the confidence in the world. We're all going to be wearing gloves and leather leggings. The vulture's talons are quite powerful. 
they could break a shin bone like a twig. There was no way out for me. I was caught, nailed by an exorbitant excitation. My admiration for Mr. Leandro Acosta knew no limits at that moment. I saw him as a true hunter, resourceful, cunning, knowledgeable. Okay, let's do it then, I said. That's my boy, said Mr. Acosta. I expected as much from you. He had put a thick blanket behind his saddle, and one of his friends just lifted me up and put me on Mr. Acosta's horse, right behind the saddle, sitting on the blanket. Hold on to the saddle, Mr. Acosta said, and as you hold on to the saddle, hold the blanket, too. We took off at a leisurely trot. We rode for perhaps an hour until we came to some flat, dry, desolate lands. We stopped by a tent that resembled a vendor's stand in a market. It had a flat roof for shade. Underneath that roof was a dead brown donkey. It didn't seem that old. It looked like an adolescent donkey. Neither Mr. Acosta nor his friends explained to me whether they had found or killed the dead donkey. I waited for them to tell me, but I wasn't going to ask. While they made the preparations, Mr. Acosta explained that the tent was in place because vultures were on the lookout from huge distances out there, circling very high, out of sight but certainly capable of seeing everything that was going on. Those creatures are creatures of sight alone, Mr. Acosta said. They have miserable ears and their noses are not as good as their eyes. We have to plug every hole of the carcass. I don't want you to be peeking out of any hole because they will see your eye and never come down. They must see nothing. They put some sticks inside the donkey's belly and crossed them, leaving enough room for me to crawl in. At one moment I finally ventured the question that I was dying to ask. Tell me, Mr. Acosta, this donkey surely died of illness, didn't he? Do you think its disease could affect me? Mr. Acosta raised his eyes to the sky. Come on, you cannot be that dumb. Donkeys' diseases cannot be transmitted to man. Let's live this adventure and not worry about stupid details. If I were shorter, I'd be inside that donkey's belly myself. Do you know what it is to catch the king of turkey buzzards? I believed him. His words were sufficient to set up a cloak of unequaled confidence over me. I wasn't going to get sick and miss the event of events. The dreaded moment came when Mr. Acosta put me inside the donkey. Then they stretched the skin over the armature and began to sew it closed. They left, nevertheless, a large area open at the bottom, against the ground, for air to circulate in. The horrendous moment for me came when the skin was finally closed over my head like the lid of a coffin. I breathed hard, thinking only about the excitement of grabbing the king of vultures by the neck. Mr. Acosta gave me last-minute instructions. He said that he would let me know by a whistle that resembled a bird call when the king vulture was flying around and when it had landed, so as to keep me informed and prevent me from fretting or getting impatient. Then I heard them pulling down the tent, followed by their horses galloping away. It was a good thing that they hadn't left a single space open to look out from, because that's what I would have done. The temptation to look up and see what was going on was nearly irresistible. A long time went by in which I didn't think of anything. Then I heard Mr. Acosta's whistling, and I presumed the king vulture was circling around. My presumption turned to certainty when I heard the flapping of powerful wings, and then, suddenly, the dead donkey's body began to rock as if it were in a windstorm. 
Then I felt a weight on the donkey's body, and I knew that the king vulture had landed on the donkey and was not moving anymore. I heard the flapping of other wings and the whistling of Mr. Acosta in the distance. Then I braced myself for the inevitable. The body of the donkey began to shake as something started to rip the skin. Then, suddenly, a huge, ugly head with a red crest, an enormous beak, and a piercing open eye burst in. I yelled with fright and grabbed the neck with both hands. I think I stunned the king vulture for an instant because he didn't do anything, which gave me the opportunity to grab his neck even harder, and then all hell broke loose. He ceased to be stunned and began to pull with such force that I was smashed against the structure, and in the next instant I was partially out of the donkey's body, armature and all holding on to the neck of the invading beast for dear life. I heard Mr. Acosta's galloping horse in the distance. I heard him yelling, Let go, boy! Let go! He's going to fly away with you! The king vulture indeed was going to either fly away with me holding on to his neck or rip me apart with the force of his talons. The reason he couldn't reach me was because his head was sunk halfway into the viscera and the armature. His talons kept slipping on the loose intestines and they never actually touched me. Another thing that saved me was that the force of the vulture was involved in pulling his neck out from my clasp, and he could not move his talons far forward enough to really injure me. The next thing I knew, Mr. Acosta had landed on top of the vulture at the precise moment that my leather gloves came off my hands. Mr. Acosta was beside himself with joy. We've done it, boy! We've done it! he said. The next time we will have longer stakes on the ground that the vulture cannot yank out, and you will be strapped to the structure. My relationship with Mr. Acosta had lasted long enough for us to catch a vulture. Then my interest in following him disappeared as mysteriously as it had appeared, and I never really had the opportunity to thank him for all the things that he had taught me. Don Juan said that he had taught me the patience of a hunter at the best time to learn it, and above all he had taught me to draw from solitariness all the comfort that a hunter needs. You cannot confuse solitude with solitariness, Don Juan explained to me once. Solitude, for me, is psychological, of the mind. Solitariness is physical. One is debilitating, the other comforting. For all this, Don Juan had said, I was indebted to Mr. Acosta forever, whether or not I understood indebtedness the way warriors understand it. The second person Don Juan thought I was indebted to was a ten-year-old child I'd known growing up. His name was Armando Vélez. Just like his name, he was extremely dignified, starchy, a little old man. I liked him very much because he was firm and yet very friendly. He was someone who could not easily be intimidated. He would fight anyone if he needed to, and yet he was not a bully at all. The two of us used to go on fishing expeditions. We used to catch very small fish that lived under rocks and had to be gathered by hand. We would put the tiny fish we caught to dry in the sun and eat them raw, all day sometimes. I also liked the fact that in addition to being resourceful and clever, he was ambidextrous. He could throw a rock with his left hand farther than with his right. We had endless competitive games in which, to my ultimate chagrin, he always won. He used to sort of apologize to me for winning by saying, If I slow down and let you win, you'll hate me. It'll be an affront to your manhood, so try harder. Because of his excessively starchy behavior, we used to call him Senor Velez, but the Senor was shortened to show, a custom typical of the region in South America where I come from. 
One day, Chauvelas asked me something quite unusual. He began his request, naturally, as a challenge to me. I'll bet anything, he said, that I know something that you wouldn't dare do. What are you talking about, Chauvelas? You wouldn't dare go down a river in a raft. Oh, yes, I would. I've done it in a flooded river. I got stranded on an island for eight days once. They had to drift food to me. This was the truth. My other best friend was a child nicknamed Crazy Shepherd. We got stranded in a flood on an island once with no way for anyone to rescue us. Townspeople expected the flood to overrun the island and kill us both. They drifted baskets of food down the river in the hope that they would land on the island, which they did. The townspeople kept us alive in this fashion until the water had subsided enough for them to reach us with a raft and pull us to the banks of the river. No, this is a different affair, Chauvelas continued with his erudite attitude. This one implies going on a raft down a subterranean river. He pointed out that a huge section of a local river went through a mountain. That subterranean section of the river had always been a most intriguing place for me. Its entrance into the mountain was a foreboding cave of considerable size, always filled with bats and smelling of ammonia. Children of the area were told that it was the entrance to hell. Sulfur fumes, heat, stench. You bet your friggin' boots, Chauvelas, that I will never go near that river in my lifetime, I yelled. Not in ten lifetimes. You have to be really crazy to do something like that. Chauvelas's serious face got even more solemn. Oh, he said, then I will have to do it all by myself. I thought for a minute that I could goad you into going with me. I was wrong. My loss. Hey, Chauvelas, what's with you? Why in the world would you go into that hellish place? I have to, he said in his gruff little voice. You see, my father would be as crazy as you are, except that he is a father and a husband. He has six people who depend on him. Otherwise, he would be as crazy as a goat. My two sisters, my two brothers, my mother and I depend on him. He is everything to us. I didn't know who Chauvelas' father was. I had never seen him. I didn't even know what he did for a living. Chauvelas revealed that his father was a businessman and that everything that he owned was on the line, so to speak. My father has constructed a raft and wants to go, Chauvelas continued. He wants to make that expedition. My mother says that he's just letting off steam, but I don't trust him. I have seen your crazy look in his eyes. One of these days, he'll do it, and I'm sure that he'll die. So, I'm going to take his raft and go into that river myself. I know that I will die, but my father won't. I felt something like an electric shock go through my neck, and I heard myself saying in the most agitated tone one can imagine, I'll do it, Chauvelas, I'll do it, yes, yes, it'll be great, I'll go with you. Chauvelas had a smirk on his face. I understood it as a smirk of happiness at the fact that I was going with him, not at the fact that he had succeeded in luring me. He expressed that feeling in his next sentence. I know that if you are with me, I will survive, he said. I didn't care whether Chauvelas survived or not. What had galvanized me was his courage. I knew that Chauvelas had the guts to do what he was saying. He and Crazy Shepherd were the only gutsy kids in town. They both had something that I considered unique and unheard of. Courage. No one else in that whole town had any. I had tested them all. As far as I was concerned, every one of them was dead, including the love of my life, my grandfather. I knew this without the shadow of a doubt when I was ten. 
Chauvelis' daring was a staggering realization for me. I wanted to be with him to the bitter end. We made plans to meet at the crack of dawn, which we did, and the two of us carried his father's lightweight raft for three or four miles out of town into some low green mountains to the entrance of the cave where the river became subterranean. The smell of bat manure was overwhelming. We crawled on the raft and pushed ourselves into the stream. The raft was equipped with flashlights, which we had to turn on immediately. It was pitch black inside the mountain and humid and hot. The water was deep enough for the raft and fast enough that we didn't need to paddle. The flashlights would create grotesque shadows. Chauvelis whispered in my ear that perhaps it was better not to look at all, because it was truly something more than frightening. He was right. It was nauseating. Oppressive. The lights stirred bats so that they began to fly around us, flapping their wings aimlessly. As we traveled deeper into the cave, we reached an area where there were not even any bats. There was only stagnant air that was heavy and hard to breathe. After what seemed like hours, we came to a sort of pool where the water was very deep. It hardly moved. It looked as if the main stream had been dammed. We are stuck, Chauvelis whispered in my ear. There's no way for the raft to go through and there's no way for us to go back. The current was just too great for us to even attempt a return trip. We decided that we had to find a way out. I realized then that if we stood on top of the raft, we could touch the ceiling of the cave, which meant that the water had been dammed almost all the way to the top of the cave. At its entrance, the cave had been cathedral-like, maybe 50 feet high. My only conclusion was that we were on top of a pool that was about 50 feet deep. We tied the raft to a rock and began to swim into the depths, trying to feel for a movement of water, a current. Everything was humid and hot on the surface, but very cold a few feet below. My body felt the change in temperature and I became frightened, a strange animal fear that I had never felt before. I surfaced. Chauvelis must have felt the same. We bumped into each other on the surface. I think we're close to dying, he said solemnly. I didn't share his solemnity or his desire to die. I searched frantically for an opening. Floodwaters must have carried rocks that had created a dam. I found a hole big enough for my ten-year-old body to go through. I pulled Chauvelis down and showed the hole to him. It was impossible for the raft to go through it. We pulled our clothes from the raft and tied them into a very tight bundle and swam downward with them until we found the hole again and went through it. We ended up on a water slide like the ones in amusement parks. Rocks covered with lichen and moss allowed us to slide for a great distance without being injured at all. Then we came into another enormous cathedral-like cave where the water continued flowing, waist-deep. We saw the light of the sky at the end of the cave and waded out. Without saying a word, we spread out our clothes and let them dry in the sun, then got dressed and headed back for town. Chauvelis was nearly inconsolable because he had lost his father's raft. My father would have died there, he finally conceded. His body would never have gone through the hole we went through. He's too big for it. My father's a big, fat man, he said, but he would have been strong enough to walk his way back to the entrance. I doubted it. As I remembered at times, due to the inclination, the current was astoundingly fast. I conceded that perhaps a desperate big man could have finally walked his way out with the aid of ropes and a lot of effort. The issue of whether Chauvelis's father would have died there or not was not resolved then, but that didn't matter to me. What mattered was that for the first time in my life, 
I had felt the sting of envy. Chauvelis was the only being I ever envied in my life. He had someone to die for, and he had proven to me that he would do it. I had no one to die for, and I had proven nothing at all. In a symbolic fashion, I gave Chauvelis the total cake. His triumph was complete. I bowed out. That was his town, those were his people, and he was the best among them as far as I was concerned. When we parted that day, I spoke a banality that turned out to be a deep truth when I said, Be the king of them, Chauvelis. You are the best. I never spoke to him again. I purposely ended my friendship with him. I felt that this was the only gesture I could make to denote how profoundly I had been affected by him. Don Juan believed that my indebtedness to Chauvelis was imperishable, that he was the only one who had ever taught me that we must have something we could die for before we could think that we have something to live for. If you have nothing to die for, Don Juan said to me once, how can you claim that you have something to live for? The two go hand in hand, with death at the helm. The third person Don Juan thought I was indebted to beyond my life and my death was my grandmother on my mother's side. In my blind affection for my grandfather, the male, I had forgotten the real source of strength in that household, my very eccentric grandmother. Many years before I came to their household, she had saved a local Indian from being lynched. He was accused of being a sorcerer. Some irate young men were actually hanging him from a tree on my grandmother's property. She came upon the lynching and stopped it. All the lynchers seemed to have been her godsons, and they wouldn't dare go against her. She pulled the man down and took him home to cure him. The rope had already cut a deep wound on his neck. His wounds healed, but he never left my grandmother's side. He claimed that his life had ended the day of the lynching, and that whatever new life he had no longer belonged to him. It belonged to her. Being a man of his word, he dedicated his life to serving my grandmother. He was her valet, majordomo, and counselor. My aunts said that it was he who had advised my grandmother to adopt a newborn orphan child as her son, something that they resented more than bitterly. When I came into my grandparents' house, my grandmother's adopted son was already in his late thirties. She had sent him to study in France. One afternoon, out of the blue, a most elegantly dressed husky man got out of a taxi in front of the house. The driver carried his leather suitcases to the patio. The husky man tipped the driver generously. I noticed in one glance that the husky man's features were very striking. He had long curly hair and long curly eyelashes. He was extremely handsome without being physically beautiful. His best feature was, however, his beaming, open smile, which he immediately turned on me. May I ask your name, young man, he said with the most beautiful stage voice I'd ever heard. The fact that he had addressed me as young man had won me over instantly. My name is Carlos Aranja, sir, I said, and may I ask in turn what is yours? He made a gesture of mock surprise. He opened his eyes wide and jumped backwards as if he had been attacked. Then he began to laugh uproariously. At the sound of his laughter, my grandmother came out to the patio. When she saw the husky man, she screamed like a small girl and threw her arms around him in a most affectionate embrace. He lifted her up as if she weighed nothing and twirled her around. I noticed then that he was very tall. His huskiness hid his height. He actually had the body of a professional fighter. He seemed to notice that I was eyeing him. He flexed his biceps. I've done some boxing in my day, sir, he said. 
thoroughly aware of what I was thinking. My grandmother introduced him to me. She said that he was her son Antoine, her baby, the apple of her eye. She said that he was a dramatist, a theater director, a writer, a poet. The fact that he was so athletic was his winning ticket with me. I didn't understand at first that he was adopted. I noticed, however, that he didn't look at all like the rest of the family. While every one of the members of my family were corpses that walked, he was alive, vital from the inside out. We hit it off marvelously. I liked the fact that he worked out every day punching a bag. I liked immensely that he not only punched the bag, he kicked it, too, in the most astounding style, a mixture of boxing and kicking. His body was as hard as a rock. One day, Antoine confessed to me that his only fervent desire in life was to be a writer of note. I have everything, he said. Life has been very generous to me. The only thing I don't have is the only thing I want. Talent. The muses do not like me. I appreciate what I read, but I cannot create anything that I like to read. That's my torment. I lack the discipline or the charm to entice the muses, so my life is as empty as anything can be. Antoine went on to tell me that the one reality that he had was his mother. He called my grandmother his bastion, his support, his twin soul. He ended up by voicing a very disturbing thought to me. If I didn't have my mother, he said, I wouldn't live. I realized then how profoundly tied he was to my grandmother. All the horror stories that my aunts had told me about the spoiled child Antoine became suddenly very vivid for me. My grandmother had really spoiled him beyond salvation. Yet they seemed so very happy together. I saw them sitting for hours on end, his head on her lap as if he were still a child. I had never heard my grandmother converse with anybody for such lengths of time. Abruptly, one day Antoine started to produce a lot of writing. He began to direct a play at the local theater, a play that he had written himself. When it was staged, it became an instant success. His poems were published in the local paper. He seemed to have hit a creative streak. But only a few months later, it all came to an end. The editor of the town's paper publicly denounced Antoine. He accused him of plagiarism and published in the paper the proof of Antoine's guilt. My grandmother, of course, would not hear of her son's misbehavior. She explained it all as a case of profound envy. Every one of those people in that town was envious of the elegance, the style of her son. They were envious of his personality, of his wit. Indeed, he was the personification of elegance and savoir-faire. But he was a plagiarist, for sure. There was no doubt about it. Antoine never explained his behavior to anyone. I liked him too much to ask him anything about it. Besides, I didn't care. His reasons were his reasons, as far as I was concerned. But something was broken. From then on, our lives moved in leaps and bounds, so to speak. Things changed so drastically in the house from one day to the next that I grew accustomed to expect anything, the best or the worst. One night, my grandmother walked into Antoine's room in a most dramatic fashion. There was a look of hardness in her eyes that I had never seen before. Her lips trembled as she spoke. Something terrible has happened, Antoine, she began. Antoine interrupted her. He begged her to let him explain. She cut him off abruptly. No, Antoine, no, she said firmly. This has nothing to do with you. It has to do with me. At this very difficult time for you, something of greater importance yet has happened. Antoine, my dear son, I have run out of time. 
I want you to understand that this is inevitable, she went on. I have to leave, but you must remain. You are the sum total of everything that I have done in this life. Good or bad, Antoine, you are all I am. Give life a try. In the end, we will be together again anyway. Meanwhile, however, do, Antoine, do. Whatever, it doesn't matter what, as long as you do. I saw Antoine's body as it shivered with anguish. I saw how he contracted his total being, all the muscles of his body, all his strength. It was as if he had shifted gears from his problem, which was like a river, to the ocean. Promise me that you won't die until you die, she shouted at him. Antoine nodded his head. My grandmother the next day, on the advice of her sorcerer counselor, sold all her holdings, which were quite sizable, and turned the money over to her son Antoine. And the following day, very early in the morning, the strangest scene that I had ever witnessed took place in front of my ten-year-old eyes, the moment in which Antoine said goodbye to his mother. It was a scene as unreal as the set of a moving picture, unreal in the sense that it seemed to have been concocted, written down somewhere, created by a series of adjustments that a writer makes and a director carries out. The patio of my grandparents' house was the setting. Antoine was the main protagonist, his mother the leading actress. Antoine was traveling that day. He was going to the port. He was going to catch an Italian liner and go over the Atlantic to Europe on a leisurely cruise. He was as elegantly dressed as ever. A taxi driver was waiting for him outside the house, blowing the horn of his taxi impatiently. I had witnessed Antoine's last feverish night when he tried as desperately as anyone can try to write a poem for his mother. It is crap, he said to me. Everything that I write is crap. I'm a nobody. I assured him, even though I was nobody to assure him, that whatever he was writing was great. At one moment I got carried away and stepped over certain boundaries I should never have crossed. Take it from me, Antoine. I yelled, I'm a worse nobody than you. You have a mother. I have nothing. Whatever you are writing is fine. Very politely, he asked me to leave his room. I had succeeded in making him feel stupid, having to listen to advice from a nobody kid. I bitterly regretted my outburst. I would have liked him to keep on being my friend. Antoine had his elegant overcoat neatly folded, draped over his right shoulder. He was wearing a most beautiful green suit, English cashmere. My grandmother spoke. You have to hurry up, dear, she said. Time is of the essence. You have to leave. If you don't, these people will kill you for the money. She was referring to her daughters and their husbands, who were beyond fury when they found out that their mother had quietly disinherited them, and that the hideous Antoine, their arch-enemy, was going to get away with everything that was rightfully theirs. I'm sorry I have to put you through all this, my grandmother apologized, but as you know, time is independent of our wishes. Antoine spoke with his grave, beautifully modulated voice. He sounded more than ever like a stage actor. It'll take but a minute, mother, he said. I'd like to read something that I have written for you. It was a poem of thanks. When he had finished reading, he paused. There was such a wealth of feeling in the air, such a tremor. It was sheer beauty, Antoine, my grandmother said, sighing. It expressed everything that you wanted to say everything that I wanted to hear. She paused for an instant. Then her lips broke into an exquisite smile. 
Plagiarized, Antoine? She asked. Antoine's smile in response to his mother was equally beaming. Of course, mother, he said. Of course. They embraced, weeping. The horn of the taxi sounded more impatient yet. Antoine looked at me where I was hiding under the stairway. He nodded his head slightly as if to say, Goodbye, take care. Then he turned around and without looking at his mother again, he ran toward the door. He was 37 years old, but he looked like he was 60. He seemed to carry such a gigantic weight on his shoulders. He stopped before he reached the door when he heard his mother's voice admonishing him for the last time. Don't turn around to look, Antoine, she said. Don't turn around to look, ever. Be happy and do. Do. There is the trick. Do. The scene filled me with a strange sadness that lasts to this day. A most inexplicable melancholy that Don Juan explained as my first time knowledge that we do run out of time. The next day my grandmother left with her counselor and manservant, Ballet, on a journey to a mythical place called Rondonia, where her sorcerer helper was going to elicit her cure. My grandmother was terminally ill, although I didn't know it. She never returned, and Don Juan explained the selling of her holdings and giving them to Antoine as a supreme sorcerer's maneuver executed by her counselor to detach her from the care of her family. They were so angry with Mother for her deed that they didn't care whether or not she returned. I had the feeling that they didn't even realize that she had left. On the top of that flat mountain, I recollected those three events as if they had happened only an instant before. When I expressed my thanks to those three persons, I succeeded in bringing them back to that mountaintop. At the end of my shouting, my loneliness was something inexpressible. I was weeping uncontrollably. Don Juan very patiently explained to me that loneliness is inadmissible in a warrior. He said that warriors can count on one being on which they can focus all their love, all their care. This marvelous earth, the mother, the matrix, the epicenter of everything we are and everything we do, the very being to which all of us return, the very being that allows warriors to leave on their definitive journey. Don Hanaro proceeded to perform then an act of magical intent for my benefit. Lying on his stomach, he executed a series of dazzling movements. He became a blob of luminosity that seemed to be swimming as if the ground were a pool. Don Juan said that it was Hanaro's way of hugging the immense earth, and that in spite of the difference in size, the earth acknowledged Hanaro's gesture. The sight of Hanaro's movements and the explanation of them replaced my loneliness with sublime joy. I can't stand the idea that you are leaving, Don Juan, I heard myself saying. The sound of my voice and what I had said made me feel embarrassed. When I began to sob involuntarily, driven by self-pity, I felt even more chagrined. What is the matter with me, Don Juan, I muttered. I'm not ordinarily like this. What's happening to you is that your awareness is on your toes again, he replied, laughing. Then I lost any vestige of control and gave myself fully to my feelings of dejection and despair. I'm going to be left alone, I said in a shrieking voice. What's going to happen to me? What's going to become of me? Let's put it this way, Don Juan said calmly. In order for me to leave this world and face the unknown, I need all my strength, all my forbearance, all my luck. But above all, I need every bit of a warrior's guts of steel. 
To remain behind and fare like a warrior, you need everything of what I myself need. To venture out there, the way we are going to, is no joking matter, but neither is it to stay behind. I had an emotional outburst and kissed his hand. Whoa, 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 he said. Next thing you're going to make a shrine for my guaraches. The anguish that gripped me turned from self-pity to a feeling of unequaled loss. You are leaving, I muttered. My God, leaving forever. At that moment, Don Juan did something to me that he had done repeatedly since the first day I had met him. His face puffed up as if the deep breath he was taking inflated him. He tapped my back forcefully with the palm of his left hand and said, Get up from your toes. Lift yourself up. In the next instant, I was once again coherent, complete, in control. I knew what was expected of me. There was no longer any hesitation on my part or any concern about myself. I didn't care what was going to happen to me when Don Juan left. I knew that his departure was imminent. He looked at me, and in that look his eyes said it all. We will never be together again, he said softly. You don't need my help anymore, and I don't want to offer it to you, because if you are worth your salt as a warrior, you'll spit in my eye for offering it to you. Beyond a certain point, the only joy of a warrior is his aloneness. I wouldn't like you to try to help me either. Once I leave, I am gone. Don't think about me, for I won't think about you. If you are a worthy warrior, be impeccable. Take care of your world. Honor it. Guard it with your life. He moved away from me. The moment was beyond self-pity or tears or happiness. He shook his head as if to say goodbye, or as if he were acknowledging what I felt. Forget the self, and you will fear nothing. In whatever level of awareness you find yourself to be, he said. He had an outburst of levity. He teased me for the last time on this earth. I hope you find love, he said. He raised his palm toward me and stretched his fingers like a child and contracted them against the palm. Ciao, he said. I knew that it was futile to feel sorry or to regret anything and that it was as difficult for me to stay behind as it was for Don Juan to leave. Both of us were caught in an irreversible energetic maneuver that neither of us could stop. Nevertheless, I wanted to join Don Juan, follow him wherever he went. The thought crossed my mind that perhaps if I died, he would take me with him. I saw then how Don Juan Matus, the Nawal, led the fifteen other seers who were his companions, his wards, his delight, one by one, to disappear in the haze of that mesa toward the north. I saw how every one of them turned into a blob of luminosity, and together they ascended and floated above the mountaintop like phantom lights in the sky. They circled above the mountain once, as Don Juan had said they would do. Their last survey, the one for their eyes only, their last look at this marvelous earth. And then they vanished. I knew what I had to do. I had run out of time. I took off at my top speed toward the precipice and leaped into the abyss. I felt the wind on my face for a moment, and then the most merciful blackness swallowed me like a peaceful subterranean river. Syntax A man staring at his equations 
said that the universe had a beginning. There had been an explosion, he said, a bang of bangs and the universe was born. And it is expanding, he said. He had even calculated the length of its life, ten billion revolutions of the earth around the sun. The entire globe cheered. They found his calculations to be science. None thought that by proposing that the universe began, the man had merely mirrored the syntax of his mother tongue, a syntax which demands beginnings, like birth, and developments, like maturation, and ends, like death, as statements of facts. The universe began, and it is getting old, the man assured us, and it will die like all things die, like he himself died, after confirming mathematically the syntax of his mother tongue. The Other Syntax Did the universe really begin? Is the theory of the Big Bang true? These are not questions, though they sound like they are. Is the syntax that requires beginnings, developments, and ends as statements of fact the only syntax that exists? That's the real question. There are other syntaxes. There is one, for example, which demands that varieties of intensity be taken as facts. In that syntax, nothing begins and nothing ends. Thus birth is not a clean, clear-cut event, but a specific type of intensity. And so is maturation. And so is death. A man of that syntax, looking over his equations, finds that he has calculated enough varieties of intensity to say with authority that the universe never began and will never end, but that it has gone and is going now and will go through endless fluctuations of intensity. That man could very well conclude that the universe itself is the chariot of intensity and that one can board it to journey through changes without end. He will conclude all that and much more, perhaps without ever realizing that he is merely confirming the syntax of his mother tongue. And this completes this book and this show. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for my New Year's show. This is one that you won't want to miss. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.